and welcome to The Renewable Generation, a show on climate and energy issues by young people, for all people. My name is Evan, and joining me, as always, are the lovely Kelly and Steve. Kelly, how you been doing? It's been a while. Yeah, it's been a while. Um, I'm doing good. It's a new year. Um, same new year, same me. It's February now. Um, <laughs> I've been doing some uh, backcountry skiing um, up here in Seattle, avoiding the resorts because more people, more COVID, although there's more people in the backcountry now too. Um, but overall, doing good, just keeping the seasonal depression at bay, trying to get outside when it's nice. Um, actually, work from home helps with that because sometimes it'll be like there's like one nice hour during the day and the rest of the time it's terrible and rainy. So it's like, because you're at home, you can have a lot more flexibility. So that's been really nice. I'm glad you're still getting your daily intake of PNW Nature. Uh, I'm very, uh, as always, very jealous of uh, where you live. Uh, Steve, how are things like in DC? Pretty good. Pretty good. There were some. Uh, there were some interesting times um, about a month ago. Um, but you know, now it's it's February and new administration has taken over and things are going pretty smooth. I did lose about $3,000 on GameStop um, recently, but, you know, you win some, you lose some, you know, you got you to gotta take your shot, and, you know, scared money don't make money. So that's all I got to say about that. I, I, I seem to remember some diamond hands in the, uh, the Facebook post. Uh, are you saying... Paper, paper oh, hands. Man. You hate to hear it. I tried. Well, as Steve mentioned, uh, there's a new administration, and when we last left you guys on the Renewable Generation... It was, what, the day, maybe the week before, uh, what was supposed to be election day, and then ended up being more of an election month? It's been two months now since that week that we left you guys, and it's been kind of a crazy time, uh, especially in America, but all around the world. Uh, there's been uh, an election in this country, there's been disputes on that election, there's been an attempted coup in America, there's been an actual coup in Myanmar... Uh, so it's kind of a hectic time. Uh, we're almost forgetting that we're still in the middle of a global pandemic. But within all of this craziness, we're starting to see a little bit of structure. Um, and a lot of that's due to the new administration. Um, since they've been, uh, since uh, Inauguration Day, which was, as of recording this, about two and a half weeks ago, we've seen, I don't even want to say a number for the amount of executive actions we've seen, because it's probably going to be a greater number by the time this episode comes out, but we've seen plenty of executive actions. And today we're going to talk about some of those executive actions, particularly the ones that deal with climate. So to start us off, let's talk about uh, maybe the one that's been the forefront of everyone's focus, which is the Paris Climate Accord and the rejoining of the Paris Accords. So uh, Steve, why don't you uh, talk to us a little bit about that? Sure, Evan, and it's good to be back. Um, it's good to be back in this podcast. It's good to be back in the Paris Climate Accord. Um, so as Joe pr promised, he joined uh, the Paris back on day one. Um, and, you know, a lot of critics will say, oh, what is going to make, what is going to come of this? What, you know, it's all talk, no action. Well, that's, that's bullshit. I mean, it, the Paris Climate Accord is, talk, is global diplomacy. You have to get people to the, to the same table in the same room to coordinate on solutions. At the end of the day, it just comes down to that. And, it, and it's a lot of times it's not even about the actual talks that are had, the meetings that are held, the presentations. It's about the, the, the side room conversations, the little chats on the way to the bathroom, like the little handshake you have as you like grab lunch with you know, a, a diplomat that you've never talked to before. You make little deals happen on the sides. And this is how innovation and solutions actually come to materialize. So um, let's keep in mind, you know, as even though the United States is a, a global leader and it's definitely the most emittive, most pollutant, um, the most pollutant country in the world, it's only 15 percent of all global emissions. So if our goal is to solve climate change, then the U.S. cannot be the only one acting. We actually need to lead the entire world to solving climate change and to, into achieving net zero emissions by 2050. Yeah. And to add on to that, I think. The U.S. being in global, a global agreement, it's a sign that we're back and engaging, which is really important because 
I mean, previously when we weren't in and when we were sending representatives to these international climate conferences who are saying like, oh, clean coal is the way that just detracts from the whole negotiations instead of having the U.S. being like, okay, even if we weren't the most ambitious, um, it's still like better than actively hawking fossil fuels. And then that also gives cover to countries, bad actors like Saudi Arabia and Russia we're like, see, the U.S. isn't doing anything. Like, they have absolutely no moral um, position to be able to criticize us. And I think the U.S. getting back in and also even like strengthening our commitments in every way is a really good sign. Yeah. So you know, as we mentioned, there have been a flurry, really a blitzkrieg of executive actions that Joe Biden has taken on day one, day two, day three. Um, one of those things is created um, several government structures or new offices. Um, so one of them is the White House Office of Domestic Climate Policy, led by the first ever National Climate Advisor and Deputy National Climate Advisor, um, colloquially known as Climate Czar. Um, This is, um, her name is Gina McCarthy, um, who is currently the President and CEO of the Natural Resources Defense Council. So pretty great that we have someone with um, extensive leadership and um, bold action um, leading this. So this was focused on domestic climate policy, There's also another one called the National Climate Task Force, which is assembling leaders from across 21 federal agencies to collaborate and align solutions um, federally, you know, government-wide. And and another one is called the White House Environmental Justice Interagency Council and a White House Environmental Justice Advisory Council to prioritize environmental justice. So this is all extremely important, too, because as as we are working to solve climate change, it's not enough to just reduce emissions, but we also have to make sure that we are doing so equitably, keeping justice and vulnerable communities at the center of our solutions. Otherwise, we risk just leaving behind the same people who have been continuously, um, you know, continuously done violence upon um, historically. Yeah, I just I have a couple of questions, um, more just one question about all of these titles, because I mean, I've been seeing these titles being announced throughout the past couple of weeks. And I mean, it, it sounds great uh, as a lot, like every time you see anything going towards climate action, it sounds great. But what is it actually doing? Like, I don't want to say they sound like figureheads, but when you see the climate czar, it kind of sounds like a figurehead. So what are these people actually doing to combat climate issues and what are they really like what's the purpose of all of these different titles well so my view is that they're actually creating these new positions to coordinate the government response across all agencies so previously climate change was like oh that's the epa's job or that's the department of energy's job now it's everyone's job like now the secretary of the treasury is going to be looking at systemic risks to the financial system from climate change that's new that's not what they did before. And it's because they're taking this whole of government approach rather than just being like, okay, like, <clears throat> you know, it, the EPA can take care of it. Like, no, they can't. Um, and so it, that's why I think it's important to have the White House government of um, climate, uh, climate change or whatever it is, the interagency coordination. Um, National Climate Task Force. Sorry. Yes, that's what I meant. Um, And then environmental justice, I think um, it's also been something that's been kind of on the side traditionally, but the fact that they're creating this um, agency or task force that's specifically focused on environmental justice is a great sign. And also, um, Biden said that uh, there's an, so there's an executive order saying that uh, 40% of all sustainability investments need to go to disadvantaged communities. So that's huge as well. Because a lot of these communities that have historically been underinvested in, they need um, these resources to be able to make sure that the transition is equitable. And another thing, on the point of bipartisanship, a lot of these environmental justice communities, even though you might think it's like, oh, yes, it's like, you know, um, inner city, New York, Detroit, whatever. It's actually a lot of um, red states where there's a lot of environmental justice going on, coal communities, they bear a huge burden of pollution, and they're going to be benefiting from these investments in environmental justice communities. So that's pretty cool. So besides um, the, some of those executive actions, um, we should also talk about Joe Biden's cabinet, um, really his entire you know, A-team on, on several different 
really every aspect of government and economy. Um, so starting off, I think the first thing we already mentioned the the climate czar Gina McCarthy. Um, the other um, very big figure on the cabinet is going to be John Kerry, who they created a new position for him called the President's Special Envoy on Climate. Um, so John Kerry is essentially also a climate czar, but he is focused on international diplomacy. So he's going to be the one at Paris Climate Accords. He's going to be the one coordinating with the UN. And again, again, the US is only 15% of all global emissions. So this is extremely important to actually solving climate change. Um, another one is Janet Yellen, who uh, Secretary Treasury. Um, she is actually the most qualified financial um, government bureaucrat in the history of the United States. Also, a UC Berkeley alumni, go bear. Um, so she is really, as, as Kelly mentioned, she's huge um, on carbon pricing. Well, I don't want to put words into her mouth, but she said she is looking into carbon pricing, which signals a lot of optimism in my heart. Um, she's, again, she's just considering um, financial risk. Um, she's considering climate risk as financial risk, um, as she should. Um, another one is going to be former Michigan governor, Jennifer Granholm to the Energy Secretary. This is the head of the Department of Engineer, uh, Department of Energy. Another UC Berkeley alumni, Go Bear, um, and um, Deb Holland, um, the Secretary of Interior. Who this is the person who manages all federal lands, including um, national parks, but also just um, government-owned land. I think there's government-owned land besides federal parks, right? Yeah, um, there's the National Forests, and then there's the Bureau of Land Management, which um, also owns just a lot of land. She would be the first Indigenous um, Secretary of the Interior, and the Bureau of Indian Affairs is also under the Department of Interior. So that's huge that an Indigenous person is leading that. Um, also, another joke about Janet Yellen, actually. So her husband is also a very um, well-renowned economist. He's actually a Nobel Prize winner. Um, and the joke is the only table at which he's the least um, qualified economist is the breakfast table. Yeah. It's pretty awesome. It's pretty great. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, on the on the Deb Holland um, piece about you know Secretary of Interior, I do think that it's worth mentioning how significant this is. You know, um, all of let's just acknowledge that all of American land is stolen land. You know, it's conquested land. It's, it's indigenous land. And to have Deb Holland come onto this position and, and manage all these lands again is, I, in my eyes, a step in the right direction. Obviously not rewriting all of history and, and solving everything, but I mean, it's a start. Um, so I, I personally think it's great. I saw that up there and I was just like, you know, just, it just made me feel good. So just a shout out to, to Deb Holland. Um, other things would be uh, Pete Buttigieg, Mayor Pete. Um, he's that now the he, uh, the head of the transportation, um, head of transportation, which I think is also really interesting because of potentially um, public transport. He's he's kind of like a classic like straight A student kind of guy, and he's just like you just give him a task and he's gonna get it done like hundred percent. You know, give him just tell him to like go make everything public transport. He's gonna get it done. Um, and also specifically for solar, um, just in my eyes, I think it's really interesting because we build a lot of, um, we rebuild a lot of utility reconductors, which are just those poles on, that you see on the highway or in the street, you know, um, and we can actually use highway uh, right-of-ways um, to build out more distribution lines, more transmission lines. Um, essentially, his, he, if he's favorable to our industry, to my industry, it's going to be really helpful for us. Um, so I think that'd be a cool thing he could do is just like, establish right-of-ways and give that to solar and wind developers to just build out more lines. Um, and then the last one would be Michael Regan, who is the new EPA administra uh, administrator. So pretty top-notch cabinet in my eyes. A um, lot of diversity, a um, lot of representation across age, across gender, across sexual orientation, and across um, race. Yeah, and um, Michael Regan would be the first uh, Black man to be EPA administrator. So, yeah, he comes from, um, I believe, the regional EPA office from North Carolina. So he does have a background in environmental justice. So it's really cool that an environmental justice person is um, going to be head of the whole EPA. Are you guys ready to move on to the uh, to the new segment? Got executive orders. Oh, you guys have more stuff to get to? This Biden's doing too much. And the, the, real, the real thing is that none of these things were announced via Twitter. 
I felt like something was missing. So yeah, uh, Kelly, go ahead and tell us more about uh, the executive order, the many executive orders that have been uh, pushed out by the Biden-Harris administration. Sure. So a big one that came out is um, basically he signed an executive order saying that he wants all 645,000 um, federal uh, vehicles in the federal fleet to be EVs. Um, so I got really excited about this, um, but I just read this article the other day about how the um, Postal Service is currently in the midst of procuring new uh, trucks because their trucks are super old and they're in the process already before um, Biden signed this executive order and he can't really force them to uh, procure EVs. They can just like ask nicely. So we'll see what ends up actually happening in that regard. Um, cause the postal service has a fleet of over 200,000 vehicles and they're a pretty ideal candidate for electrification cause they don't really go that far. Um, so electric, uh, post, uh, trucks would be a really good move, but it remains to be seen how much influence this executive order will actually have. Um, Steve, did you want to add on, um, why you, some, a bit about why like using government procurement is a good, um, target for executive action? Yeah, I think. I mean, I think you pretty much covered it greatly. The only point that I would that I would add on to that is just that I think it's a good strategy in terms of like how governments can get things done. Like, um, it's a good way. Just it's a cost effective way to essentially subsidize electric vehicles, right? Another way thing you could do is just like give them a giant subsidy to electric vehicles and say, hey, you know, it's going to be cheaper. Um, I, I personally like markets. I think markets are great. I think they're efficient. Um, cap and um, competition is good. Essentially, what the government, what he's saying is like, we are going to buy a F ton of electric vehicles. And, you know, now it puts it out into the market and says, all right, who's going to meet this demand? And it forces uh, companies to go ahead and innovate um, and get up and meet that bar, you know? So I think that's a great way to get it done. Um, it's going to be... You know, everyone knows I'm like a Tesla fanboy. I don't think it's going to be Tesla who's going to win the day here because um, they're just too expensive. And, you know, this is not a government going to buy 600,000 electric vehicles. They're going to try to do it as cheaply as possible. So, yeah. Um, so we got a question in the chat by when does he want the electrification? So, so far, um, there hasn't been a timeline announced for when um, internal combustion engine vehicles are going to be phased out of the federal fleet. Um, officials have 90 days to come up with the electrification plan. Um, so they have 90 days to basically say how they're going to do it, but then the actual timeline has not yet been announced. And as of 2019, only 4,475 of federal vehicles were electric. So that's not a lot. That's less than 1%. Um, another part of this executive order was also they have to be produced at least um, 50% of parts produced in the U.S. with union labor. There are no EVs in America that exist today with that um, that meet that standard. The Bolt, it might be assembled in the U.S., but a lot of the parts are created overseas. And it's actually pretty interesting. So Jennifer Granholm, former governor of Michigan, she knows. she. I mean, Detroit um, is where a lot of the um, automobile manufacturers traditionally were based. And I think having her be head of um, Department of Energy and trying to shift more towards EV manufacturing domestically is um, also in a pretty interesting um, symbolic move. Yeah, one other um, question in the chat um, from uh, Shanley Finnon. Um, so she asked, do you think it's going to be possible to align the messaging of climate justice policies with the political values of red states? How can we? Um, I think that's a great question. That That is like one of the wicked problems we have to solve, I think. Um, I personally think, in my, in my non-expert opinion, I think the way to do it is to not talk about climate justice at all. Um, we don't have to agree on what are the problems to still work on the solutions together. So what I would say is just jobs. Just, just jobs. Like, you, like, as a solar developer, most of the solar that we develop are in red areas. It's because it's rural. Lots of land. And energy is, our energy is cheaper. We give jobs to, to local communities. Um, there's lo lots of NIMBYs. Don't get me wrong. A lot of people don't want solar in their backyard or they don't want to see it anywhere. But at the end of the day, the economics can't be beat. Um, so I would just hammer on that point all, all day long. Just say, like, this is going to be good for your community. It's going to bring you more tax revenue. It's going to give you cheaper energy. 
Um, it's going to give you cleaner air. It's going to give you cleaner water. And just don't even talk about climate change. Like, don't even talk about it. It's just a turnoff. Um, I think there are certain states that maybe some, some climate progress can be made. I think Florida is eventually going to wake up to the problem um, because they're, like, at sea level. Um, so eventually you can't deny the, the water on your doorstep. Um, so I think there it could work. But, like, places like... Um, Nebraska, for example. I don't, I mean, sorry. You Evan, mean four-fifths of Nebraska. Yeah, sorry. Yeah, four-fifths of Nebraska. Evan's, Evan's family has just moved to Nebraska, for, by the way. Shout out comes family. Well, one thing that I would say is, so Nebraska and in the Midwest, they've been getting a lot of hailstorms due to climate change, which I think makes people realize that, hey, actually the weather patterns are changing. Might not be climate change, but if you say like, oh, increases in precipitation due to um, like, just like over time patterns change or whatever, like, oh yeah, it makes sense. Um, But in terms of climate justice in particular, I think the idea of climate justice is like, okay, if you bore a disproportionate impact of climate change in the past, if you were more affected by pollution, then you also deserve to benefit from, um, you know, climate progress. And I think that's something that red states can totally get behind because like a lot of fossil fuel extraction and the impact downstream impacts of um, pollution from that do happen in red areas and rural areas. And I'm sure like a big part of the reason why they feel left behind is because they don't have good jobs. And so with, um, with green, clean, green jobs, you know, building wind farms, building solar farms, um, even potentially manufacturing electric vehicles in places where they used to have manufacturing, but now the plant moved away. I think, especially with the um, EV mandate to source um, at least 50% of the vehicle from union American labor, I think that'll be huge for um, getting, for helping some of these uh, places that have been trending more red because they've been feeling left behind. All right, so moving on for the rest of the executive orders, because we still got some to go through here. So we just talked about electric vehicle procurement. There's also been an, elect- uh, an executive order, which has caused a pause on oil and gas leases on public lands. This, for example, has affected the Keystone XL pipeline, which has become very famous and very... Pol- oh, Kelly says no. Am I, is that a fact check? That's a sep- that's a separate executive order. Okay. So the pausing the oil and gas leases on federal land is basically like the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge. You know how they were trying to sell leases? They're like, okay, no more leases being sold for 90 days while we reevaluate. Um, and also other um, federal lands like BLM lands, they're just pausing the oil and gas leases. The Keystone XL pipeline, it's not... Um, I think the oil that's being run through the Keystone XL pipeline actually comes from Canada because Trudeau, Trudeau came out and was like all pissy about it. He was like, oh, you know, we're strong allies. I don't, like why you do this to me, America. <laughs> um, so uh, that's that's different. And that's also mainly a um, symbolic move, to be totally honest, um, because you know, like Trump came in, he like reapproved the permit, Biden comes in, he revokes it. And there's many pipelines being constructed all the time, just that the Keystone is the most um, big ticket one. But I still think it's a nice thing for the climate activists that they got this win. Yeah. And I think um, that's one point that's pretty interesting is like the idea of executive. Um, I'll make this point quick because I want to keep moving on this. But um, so Trump, you know, did executive order to make it to expedite the permit. Um, he's had four years in office, and it still has not been built. Um, four years of Trump supporting it. It still has not been built. Why is that? Because the economics are poor. This is what the point that I keep hammering on. Clean energy is out-competing fossil fuels in the actual marketplace. So, like, um, that has also um, been affected by, like, activist pressure. Don't get me wrong. Like, it's economics and also activist pressure, which I think are very intertwined. Like, you people vote with their dollar all the time. And, you know, you also just make a point by standing up and, like, you know, fighting this, this permit. So that's a point I want to make. Executive orders also are very easily flipped. So Trump made an executive order one way. Biden made the executive order the other way. Who's to say what the next four years will say? You know, someone's going to do it this way. Someone's going to do it that way. So we're going to touch on this a little bit more in the second half of the show, um, the, the flimsiness of executive orders and what actually is resilient in terms of policy. But the one other thing I wanted to talk about was the Civilian Conservation Corps, which is, I think, a really exciting um, executive order, specifically for our podcast. 
because our own Kelly Jang has been pitching this idea since like mid pandemic. So Kelly, do you want to talk about uh, how Biden like actually listened to our podcast and like enacted our ideas? Oh yes, definitely. Um, so the idea behind the Civilian Conservation Corps, there's actually, um, I think, over a hundred um, conservation corps um, throughout the country already. And so they're just um, strengthening these existing programs, which is cool. Um, but basically, the idea is you can get um, anyone who shows up at these Civilian Conservation Corps offices gets hired. You get $15 an hour, um, health care, paid leave, uh, Social Security, and... Um, you get a job working on, like, conservation. And these are technically, like, unskilled or low-skilled jobs, but there's plenty of things that people can do, like wetland restoration, building trails, and then over time, potentially, there could be additional programs where you might need a little bit of additional training, like to install solar. But I think it's uh, really cool that um, the federal government is stepping in to be like, okay, like, tons of people are employed. Let's get them to work doing things that are good for the environment. Yeah, and plus it beats getting an unemployment check. We have, we have record unemployment in this country right now from a, from a historic pandemic and historic economic downturn. We have so many people sitting at home um, just doing nothing and collecting a check, you know? This is, I think, another great solution that governments can propose. It's like, you, instead of just getting a check to stay at home and do nothing, give them a check to go do something that's actually benefiting society. Um, it helps, it, it's just better for all parties involved. So I think uh, now's a, as good a time as any to move on to a, a new segment uh, that we've recently been floating about. It's a uh, it's our cap and trade segment theme song pending, uh, but hopefully by the time this episode comes out. Uh, so unlike actual cap and trade, which is a market based uh, approach to stemming emissions, we are using cap and trade the theory of cap-and-trade, to take an inward look at ourselves and picking one thing either about ourselves or something pertaining to our lives, either something we do on a daily basis or something that's in our minds on a daily basis, and we're looking to cap that. So we're looking to stop and we're looking to trade for something that we'd like to be doing or thinking about more often. So I don't know, Kelly, Steve, either you guys want to start with this one? I could go. <laughs> um, <clears throat> so... My cap and trade um, this week is to eat less meat. Um, I have tried on several occasions to be vegetarian, and I lasted about a month. I think Sid's on this call, too. Sid's the guy that made me go back to meat, by the way, so screw you, Sid. Um, Boo, you're in your chicken, your baked chicken. Um, And also, my family was also on this call. Every time I come home for Christmas, like... I can't help but eat meat. It's so good. Like, lomo saltado, get a burger with the, the sister. and Steve, I, th- I think what you need is not, not just to cap your meat consumption, but cap your uh, blaming other people for your own failures. <laughs> <laughs> True. Just, that's right. You got me. So, shame on me. Kelly, I, I texted Kelly a picture of the meat dish that I made the other day. And I was like, please shame me. And then she shamed me. So um, I, that is my plan. I definitely have been more of a flexitarian in the past, and I've been doing that pretty well. I think I'm going to just mainly focus on chicken and fish um, and pork, too. I actually found, we actually did some research while getting ready for this show, but pork is actually, um, per gram of protein, um, pretty like climate-friendly. Actually, per gram of protein, it's friendlier than tofu. According, according to that one study, which seems suspicious. Shh. Kelly, please. <laughs> okay. Yeah, I'm going to eat less meat. Yeah, that's good. Um, also, food-related, I've been trying to uh, cap the amount of sugar that I've been eating and replace it with vegetables. Um, so I think sugar uh, is not that great for the environment. It's not, like, as bad as meat, but it's still not great, and I think vegetables are better. But ultimately, that is more of just, like, a health thing. Like, it's not, it's not good to eat too much sugar. So, trying to be healthier. My cap and trade is actually emissions related, but it, uh, not really by, like, my reason for doing it. I'm, uh, I'm trying to cap driving 
and start walking a little bit more. Um, even though I, I moved back to LA, which is not a walk-friendly city, but I, I've made the decision. I live right next to a park, um, and the closest supermarket is two miles away. But I've decided, you know what, it's right next to the park. It'll be a nice little two-mile walk uh, there and back. And you know what, I, it is, the whole trip takes me two hours, but I enjoy it. So I'm, uh, I'm finding a little bit of joy in walking by Elysian Park rather than driving. All right, well, um, thanks, thanks guys for taking part in uh, our brand new segment, theme song pending, Cap and Trade. Now to move on to the second portion of our podcast, the way our podcast works, we kind of, we go more um, direct informational uh, stuff in the first half of the podcast, and then the second half of the podcast is more discussion-based, but we do still have some more information pertaining to Congress. So, um, I don't know, Steve, Kelly, which one of you guys wants to wants to start off with this one? Steve? I can start it off here. Um, <clears throat> as I mentioned previously in the show, um, executive actions can be flip-flopped by the next president very easily. So while I still do applaud Biden for his, his blitzkrieg um, strategy so far in this first couple of days, um, we also still need to have policy actually pass. And that means you need to have Congress um, work together for that. Um, this is At the end of the day, we have to think about the long-term um, strategy to solve climate change, which is going to take... Whatever, 2020, we have 30 years until 2050. That's our goal, right? So think about how old you are now and how old you're going to be in 2050. We need to have sustained um, action and strategy to continue to decarbonize every aspect of our society. Um, so in that, because I say that, that's why I talk about the resiliency of policy for Congress and legislation. Um, we, um, and with that, we have to talk about the newly flipped Congress which um, the House and the Senate currently are being controlled by the by Democrats. In the Senate, it's only being held by a slim, slim, slim majority. It's 50-50 with um, VP Kamala Harris, um, who's going to be the tie-breaking vote. Um, Kelly, as you already have talked about, um, a certain Democratic senator from West Virginia, do you want to take it over from here? Yeah. So basically, um, Joe Manchin is the Democratic senator from West Virginia. He's um, the, one of the most conservative senators, but he comes from a conservative state. So if it wasn't him, it would be like Marjorie Taylor Greene as <laughs> senator. Um, not, not her. She's from Georgia. But I mean, if it wasn't Joe Manchin, a conservative Democrat, it would be a conservative Republican who would be much less likely to support any kind of um, climate legislation. Um, so in addition to the fact that we just have a very, uh, or Democrats just have a very um, slim majority in the Senate, um, the way that the Senate rules work is that actually you need 60 votes to pass any kind of legislation. So there, it's like very complicated and it's like you need, it's like technically you need 60 votes to be able to like stop um, d debate on a bill and move towards a vote. But basically the point of it is you need 60 votes to pass any kind of legislation. And so that means that it's very difficult to get anything passed. The only exception to this is called budget reconciliation. So this is basically every year they have to pass the budget and you only need a simple majority to do that. So anything spending related only needs 50 votes to pass. This could be everything from, you know, spending $2 trillion and in investing in green infrastructure or even, um, solar or EV tax credits or things like that. Anything that materially changes government spending or um, taxes is fair game for budget reconciliation. Also, guess who's the chairman of the budget committee and is going to be in charge of making that document? None other than our favorite mittened friend, Bernard Sanders. So he's definitely a big climate champion. And um, I think any budget bill that comes out of Bernie's budget committee is going to um, have a lot of climate provisions. We're, since we're talking about how there's not really going to be any substantial, like, strong policy uh, passed under this because you need 60% majority, and right now it's pretty close to 50-50, do you see there being any substantial change just within the budgetary uh, policies? Do you, Is there any way around that? Yeah, I mean, so a lot of the spending stuff, like even the spending, you know, like 40% in disadvantaged communities, that's all fair game for the budget. Um, I think the main thing that um, the main big policy that couldn't be passed through rec budget reconciliation is the national clean energy standard. So 
Um, Biden's been talking about getting 100% clean energy by uh, or clean electricity by um, 2035. That's not something you could do through reconciliation. Although there are some very creative ideas, you could have um, basically some kind of emissions trading standard for renewables and then have that be on the government books. So it's like, oh, if this utility, like all utilities have to get to, let's say, like 90% and they get like allowances for how much fossil fuels they're allowed to use. And then if you trade the permits, then it would be on the books of the government. That would technically count, but that's pretty dubious. Um, there's this group called Evergreen um, run by Jay Inslee's former staffers that is trying to push this, but I don't know if that's actually going to happen. So, I mean, you could be creative and say that everything is related to the budget, but it also depends on whether the um, Senate parliamentarian, who's basically the person who decides the rules of the Senate or like decides the interpretation of the rules of the Senate, if she thinks that that counts. Yeah. And, you know, I would add, add, on, add on to that as well. As you, as you mentioned, everything can be considered part of the budget. Everything is economics, <clears throat> which is why I think Janet Yellen's position is, is extremely um, it's prescient. You know, she, she's 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 signaled um support for a carbon price um which can be you know um administered dom uh domestically but also internationally um so you could get you know imports from let's say south america you get uh, mangoes you get bananas um it, you could potentially put a quote-unquote tariff on certain fruits or certain imports that are more carbon intensive than others um of course this risks um retaliatory 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 tariffs um which you know it would hurt us as well but it might also induce some kind of global um agreement on you know all of us sharing tariffs on, on the price of carbon um so there are several um think tanks and and uh, universities that are already trying to think of what is the objectively correct price of of carbon emissions um essentially as a societal cost because it will cause massive destruction through climate change you could maybe say it's, it costs us $10 a ton. I don't know if that's even close to right, but just to give you an idea, it's not. Kelly, it's not. That's, that's really low. 200, 200 uh, a ton? I, I, think the, um, I think to drive economy-wide decarbonization, you would need somewhere in the range of like 100 to $200 a ton if you're only using carbon pricing as your mechanism to decarbonize. Um, but for a lot of the, I mean, this is kind of off track, but like for a lot of the segments that are harder to decarbonize, like let's say cement or steel, you're really going to need just like more technological innovation. And the way to do that is to get like all the steel makers together and be like, okay, like what are the different technological options? And then what can we do to drive that forward? And that's, I think the political messaging behind that, it's more like investing in innovation rather than being like, we're taxing you for doing something bad. So, Steve, as you say, economics is everything. And you guys are both saying that you could make um, a lot of policy uh, pass through uh, the budget. You could use that kind of as the vehicle for it. But when you look at like more substantial policy, especially ones that have been talked about recently, and this is a question in the chat about the Green New Deal specifically. Um, do you see the Green New Deal as it is right now being passed under this administration or do you think it would have to be split up? Like, because there's so many different facets of it. So you do, do you think some of those aspects of the Green New Deal will be passed under different forms? Or do you think there is a potential the Green New Deal could be passed in the next four or eight years? So my take on this is that the Green New Deal is whatever you want it to be. Because I think there, there's no specific policy like this is the Green New Deal. Like what Biden is doing, it's the Biden Green Deal, but and which is supposed to be like what it's, you know, people are just afraid of the Green New Deal because it's been, I don't know, fear mongered about on Fox News. Um, a lot of the Green New Deal is about government spending for sure. Like Bernie Sanders, like we're going to spend $10 trillion. And um, I think the Green New Deal is like we're going to get to full employment uh, through green jobs. And with the civilian, cons with the Climate Conservation Corps, I mean, they're basically moving a lot towards that, but not doing, but they're not creating a new Green New Deal's jobs program, you know? And so I think they're achieving a lot of the end goals, but without maybe making as much of a splash about it, which I think actually might be a good thing in terms of getting things done. 100%. I think I agree with everything you said, Kelly. It's like, it's the Green New Deal. A lot of, you know, the thing I would respond to that is like, 
what is the Green New Deal? Um, there's no, I mean, there's definitely been a resolution passed and there's been like a, a policy framework that's been sculpted and there's like ideas in there. But um, for the most part, in my opinion, the Green New Deal has been a, a, a issue to rally around. It's been really like lightning in a bottle. Um, and just like being able to chant Green New Deal and push our elected representatives to enact the Green New Deal has made so many of those policies like into actual like law. Um, exactly. As you said, Joe Biden has passed several um, um, orders already that have been put in the Green New Deal. But the, the key is, as, as Kelly says, is to make it as boring as possible. I would, you know, we were, we were talked about in the last season that he should call it like the Energy uh, Modernization Act and just take all the politics out of it and just get it done. Just be extremely practical, get it done. The results are what matter, not the, the rhetoric, in my opinion. And I mean, speaking of the politics and the rhetoric around all of this stuff, I know, uh, Steve, especially you, I think both of you guys would say that you've been preaching that uh, there needs to be bipartisan focus uh, with uh, climate policy. And I think when you look at like the Green New Deal, it's so like, at least the perception of it in America, it's so leaning to one party. Do you think there's still a need for bipartisan focus in this country? Or do you think it's all up to, to one one party now? Yeah, um, 100% there's still need for bipartisan focus. Um, the way I frame it is like right now, um, because Democrats have control of um, the executive and the legislative branches, they should be um, bold about that. They should not um, try to, they should not be overly willing to compromise. You should still have some compromise, you know, in you, because that's what is good about governments, democracies. But at the end of the day, the, the mentality, in my opinion, should be, we, you are more than welcome to come join us at the solutions table, but whether or not you come to the table, we're going to get it done. Um, and I would keep having that mentality and keep trying to bring conservatives to the table because at the end of the day, we need resilience policy that's going to last us 30 years. It's not just, we're not going to solve the problem in four years. It's not going to get done, even eight years. Um, it has to be a 30 year long effort. So we need to bring conservatives, good faith conservatives to the table. And they are actually out there. Um, it, the, the difficult thing is that right now, being a, being a conservative or being a Republican, you can't really talk about climate change and still win re-election. Um, we've seen that experientially um, throughout the last like four years. It's, it's just not really a winning topic there. But there are other young um, conservatives working on this problem. There's a group called um, the American Climate Coalition, who is now, they've now rebranded to the Con Conservation Coalition, or Conservation Contract, I think. Um, they, we've, we've mentioned them in the past. Um, they're a group to keep your eye on. They, the, they are going to make changes within the Republican Party if there still is one after all this settles. Um, so, yeah, we 100% need Republicans in order to solve climate change, and we are doomed without them. So we, one way or another, we need to get it done. Yeah, I would also add, like, why, why is everyone obsessed with, like, Democrats being bipartisan? But then, you know, when Trump was in office, people were like, oh, you know, Trump really needs to focus on bipartisanship. Like, come on. Um, so I think there's a bit of a double standard there. Um, but I think um, it's, it's very tricky. I think there's, like, a few uh, more moderate uh, Republicans like Mitt Romney might be like super maybe Mitt Romney could go could you know if Joe Manchin won't vote for something maybe Mitt Romney could be the guy who's like actually yeah we're gonna like vote this big climate bill in um, because he I think is kind of he has this uh, image of himself as more of like a maverick who like is independently thinking for himself um, so I think there's a few Republicans like that maybe Lisa Murkowski also um, was making some noises about how if the Republican Party is going to be the party of conspiracy theories, maybe it's not for her. But ultimately, it's, uh, yeah, I think it's going to be difficult for, um, I guess, in the current situation, it's going to be difficult to find a lot of Republicans who would um, be in favor of climate action. I, ho I dearly hope that... Um, this, I mean, I, I hope that this wouldn't be the case, but it is what it is. And we have to do what we can um, with or without Republican support. Um, what I will say also is that the um, COVID relief bill that passed in December was actually bipartisan and it included a lot of um, provisions for um, solar, solar, wind. Yeah, solar, solar, wind, um, energy storage. And so that was 
I mean, that's something that passed in a bipartisan fashion. And I think if you focus on job creation and supporting renewable energy industries, I mean, like, there's so many green jobs now in red areas that um, Republicans would be on board with just like supporting their local industries. No, now it's time for the segment that is whatever you want it to be. It's the green news spiel. Kelly, I loved that. <laughs> it's everyone's favorite segment. The green news spiel. Who wants to go first? Steve? Kelly? Um, yeah, sure. I can start us off. So my green news spiel is about General Motors, the iconic American automobile company, which just recently announced that they are going to um, be producing only electric vehicles by 2035. This is huge because... I mean, they're such an iconic American manufacturer, and this is a pretty aggressive timeline. And their um, entire company is going to be carbon neutral by 2040. Um, as part of this, they also announced that they're going to be sourcing 100% renewable energy for all their sites in the U.S. by 2030 and globally by 2035. And this is just a huge turnaround for the company, which back in... Uh, 2017, when California was trying to be like, hey, we want to be able to have more strict um, emissions rules than, um, than the whole country because Trump was um, rolling back emission standards and California still had stricter emission standards. Um, GM was challenging California on that. And now they're like, OK, actually, we're going like all in on EVs. So I think it's a good sign that... <laughs> They're kind of getting with the times. And um, before this, Steve also recommended that we check out the uh, Will Ferrell GM ad that's going to be playing in the Super Bowl, where basically Will Ferrell's like, I heard Norway has way more EVs in America. That is unacceptable. America! <laughs> Which I think is pretty funny that uh, they're appealing to, I guess, American sense that we have to be the best. Yeah, and I would also just add one little thing, which is that I think that GM made this decision because of California's recent decision to ban all internal combustion engines um, after 2035, or essentially that in California, you can no, no longer buy a new internal combustion engine after 2035. They always have to be electric vehicles. California is about one-sixth of the entire U.S. car market. So when California makes a rule like this, it really changes markets. People take a stand one way or the other. Um, I think GM saw the writing on the wall. I think, again, it boils down to economics, and they saw that there is more opportunity taking the sustainable side than the other side. All right. Well, Steve, are you ready uh, for your Green News spiel? Yeah. Um, so my Green News spiel is about um, a certain uh, number one asset manager in the world known as BlackRock, which um, we have an employee of BlackRock on this call right now. So um, shout out to, to your employer. Um, World's largest asset manager, um, known as BlackRock, has um, the CEO of that company, Larry Fink. He issues a yearly um, letter to the CEOs of all the companies that they own and all the assets that they manage. In in that letter, um, I, I mentioned it last last year as well. And that he he has last year he pretty much signaled that climate risk is financial risk and that he's going to start taking this a lot more seriously. This year, he's builded he's built upon that statement. Um, even more aggressively. Um, so he has, he has acknowledged in his letter um, the racial um, upheaval and pain that we feel in the United States and around the world around Black Lives Matter, the capital insurrection, and the fragility of democracy, and um, has applauded the U.S. rejoining the Paris Climate Accords. He um, mentioned that at the beginning of the pandemic, he actually expected a decrease in sustainable investments amidst this economic downturn and volatility. But in fact, it's accelerated, which is incredible if you think about it. People are investing, they're doubling down on climate investments because they see the writing on the wall. Climate risk, again, is investment risk. But this time he builds on that saying it's not just an investment risk, but it's also a huge investment opportunity. He has committed to joining the net zero by 2050 movement, which is the scientifically established threshold for keeping global warming below two degrees Celsius. And he emphasizes justice and equity at the center of that transition. Therefore, he says, because, we are, because BlackRock is committed to that endpoint, companies that they own have to be prepared for this energy transition, or shareholders like themselves will lose confidence in their ability to adapt, and they will die best. Um, he says specifically that, he will support, um, that BlackRock will support data disclosures on climate adjustments and supports actually one global standard across the, the planet Earth, 
so that everyone can just have the same standard for what is climate resilient. Um, and he is, and BlackRock is committed to being the fiduciary leader. Um, overall, it was a message of optimism for the future of sustainable capitalism and the opportunities that will come from the energy transition. Um, I read that just this week, and I was very optimistic. I, I filled me with hope. Um, again, I, I've been saying that since season one as well. This is a huge climate. Um, climate is a huge uh, problem, and it's a huge risk, and people will suffer immensely for it. But it is also a huge opportunity, um, and this is the wealth creation. This is the wealth creation opportunity of a generation. Um, us as young people on the call, um, we are the ones that will seize that opportunity um, if we choose to do so. So, I would just keep harping on the economic piece. Everyone who works a job should start thinking about how climate affects your job, and how you can you know make your company more um, resilient to climate risks. All right. Well, thanks, Kelly and Steve, for your green news spiels. With that, we wrap up the segment and we wrap up the show. If you're here live with us, uh, feel free to stay. If you have any more questions you want to ask me, Steve or Kelly, um, if you're listening to this on Wednesday when this should come out, uh, feel free to reach out to us on our Twitter at Gen Renew Pod or our Facebook, The Renewable Generation, or just wherever uh, wherever you can access me, Steve or Kelly. Uh, we're we're on all the socials. We're we're with it. We're trendy. So yeah, <laughs> well, one of us is on TikTok. So uh, feel free. If you if you have any good TikToks, send me some. Uh, I'll get back to you eventually.